One of the good things about going sequentially through a book like 1 Corinthians, or any book, is that um, you cannot dodge uh, certain passages and things that, you, you, that will be a little bit more difficult, you know, to talk about and to study. And, and so I was, I was, you know, I came upon uh, the passage this week and, um, you know, knew, knew this one was, was kind of coming. And I said, you know, my, my, my emotional reaction is, you know, I know a whole lot more about the Lord's Supper. Let's go right to chapter 11. People get it. We got to move on. We can't do everything. But uh, you know what? Uh, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Uh, Paul uh, wrote to a young pastor by the name of Timothy, and this is what he wrote to him. He said, uh, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, the apostle Peter wrote this. He said, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So I guess that this passage is covered by those statements, huh? What do you think? And yet, I also have to agree with Peter, when he said, just, you know, a couple of chapters uh, later, he said, and, and Paul referring to Peter, uh, excuse me, Peter referring to Paul, Peter later in his gospel, writing to his audience, referring to Paul, said, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So Peter's looking at some things. I, I just got a feeling that this might have been one of those passages, you know, where Peter's going. You know, there are some things that Paul says that, you know, I, even I don't quite fully get the whole thing. Some scriptures are more difficult than others. I really believe that the gospel, I've always said this, the gospel is truth on the bottom shelf. A five-year-old child who knows right from wrong can understand the basics of the gospel. But you know what? When you want to go deeper, you got to peer in deep. And I think that sometimes, as I read Scripture, that God has purposely, at times, obscured the easy meaning of things. Why? So that His children will look deeply, deeply into the Word and will sit at His feet and will learn. I really believe that. Craig Blomberg wrote this. He's a New Testament scholar. He said, this passage is probably the most complex, controversial, and opaque of any text of comparable length in the entire New Testament. But it does not mean that it is impossible. It doesn't. As in, you know, it's impossible to learn anything if you don't have full comprehension about what's going on. When we approach the scripture with humility, and I think this is a truism, when we approach the scripture with great humility and a spirit of anticipation kind of together, I think that God can and will speak, and he will speak into the confusion of our lives, because I believe that without reservation, uh, our culture that we live in right now is a thoroughly confused culture, and I use that word with great care, with great care and without reservation. I look at our culture and I see the utter confusion that marks our cultural conversation right now when it comes to sexuality, to gender, the role of men and women. 
Now, one question, there uh, was a question I saw on, on, the, on, the web, on this website. This website was just kind of an open forum of people asking questions about this sort of thing and, and then inviting everybody else to chime in. And so the question was this, that one you know, reader put in. said, I am very confused about my sexuality. How can I determine what my sexuality really is? And there were dozens and dozens and dozens of readers who offered their advice. One of them said this, I know it can be hard, and you may truly want to label yourself this very second as either gay, straight, bi, trans, whatever it may be. But the truth is, you have to get to know yourself, and this takes time. It doesn't happen overnight, and it takes a lot of patience. Currently, I define myself as bisexual because I don't want to tell others I am a lesbian and then fall in love with a guy and then not be able to date him. Time will help you figure out who you really are, smiley face. Another person to that question, you know, I'm very confused about my sexuality. Another person wrote in and said, try acting like both a boy and a girl, then see which one you like better. What do you feel comfortable acting like? One word, confused, confused. And when I say that, I do not say that with tooth clenched or angry. I say that with a broken heart because I know where confusion leads. I know what sort of life kind of spins out of a mind and a heart that is thoroughly confused about even the basic basic things in life. So the question to be answered in this portion of chapter 11 is not should women wear hats in church? You know, like sometimes you look at scripture and they have little, you know, should women wear hats in worship? Okay, that is not the question that's being answered here. But who has God made us to be? Who has he made us to be? And how do I embrace who I am and reflect that to not only other people in the church, in God's church, but to the world? Where, you know, what do I need to do to go from confusion to composure? We need to know what the problem is. And then we need to know what the solution is. Now, Paul begins uh, this section with a very rare point of praise for this church. I love it when I see it because it's so, you know, it's so rare, it kind of wakes you up if you're falling asleep. And he says in verse 2, I praise you for remembering me and everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. Now, Paul, in previous teachings, had probably, and again, uh, this is just conjecture, it's what we think, Paul, in previous teachings, probably enlightened them to the fact that now... In Christ, both men and women were invited to actively participate in prayer and in prophetic speech when the body of Christ got together. This would have been an, uh, an almost earth-shattering truth that would have been so against the norms of their lives that they had lived previously. He shared with the church in Galatia. So in Christ Jesus, you all are children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. 
Now, this was a wonderful new freedom that they had in Christ Jesus. See, Greeks no longer had to look at the Jews as having some sort of special standing with God because they came from the rich heritage of Abraham. A slave stood before God on the same level ground as his or her master. And there are numerous instances where on Sunday when the church met, uh, a particularly gifted slave was, who was in a leadership position held office over their master. Could you imagine that? Kind of, you know, navigating that. Women who were relegated to the cheap seats in worship now had a story to tell that others needed to hear, including the men. They got it. They embraced it. And yet, as often happens when the pendulum swings away from an extreme and oftentimes a sinful extreme, either in culture or in the church, it doesn't stop when it comes back to where it should have been all along. You know, the pendulum swings and you're off into this you know, sinful distance and it starts to swing back, but it never stops where it should have stopped. It keeps going. Do you ever see that? It just keeps going and going and going to kind of an opposite and just as sinful extreme on the, in the other direction. We have seen this many times before. What seems to have happened in this church was that in the exuberance that they were experiencing in their newfound liberating freedom, in experiencing a release from the traditions that had often shackled them, they went too far, particularly in one area, in male-female identity and in male-female relationships. Now, this was going to be you know, uh, Liz just read the whole section. I'm not doing a whole section today. You're going to have to come back for part two, okay? I just, you know, I got to that yesterday afternoon. I said, I surrender. I, I just, I got I to do it in, in, in two parts. So we're going to go up through, uh, pretty much through verse uh, 10 today, and we're going to finish it up. So, but what I want to look at is, you know, what are the things that we need, if we want to get things straightened out in the confused areas of our lives, especially in the confused areas of sexuality, what are the things that we're going to have to acknowledge? What are the things that we, can, uh, that we are going to have to embrace if that's going to happen? And the first thing as I look at it, and I look at this passage, is that we're going to have to acknowledge and, an, and honor our head, whoever that head may be. He says, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now the problem, and those of you who have been here with us through this series, you know that the problem was an abuse of their freedom. A lot of the problems that they were, they, they were having. Sin. They were sinning. And, and, and it led to problems, and it led to confusion. And the solution began with acknowledging and honoring their God-appointed head, in the mind of the Apostle Paul. Now, two things you need to know. First, the words translated man and women, or man and woman, can also be translated husband and wife. In fact, there's only one other time in the New Testament where those two words are used where it is not speaking of husband and wife. So most of the times that you see it, it's talking about a husband and wife. Now, the NIV has come out and said that it's talking about a generic man and a generic woman uh, uh, and maybe not necessarily connected to marriage, can I be, well, let me, let, me, let me be real honest. Let me back up right now. This was the most difficult week of study I have ever had in almost 30 years of ministry. And I say that, I just, I just, you need to know that right now. 
because I have looked at it before. I've in a cursory way studied this passage before. This was the first time that I got as deeply down into the weeds as I possibly could get. And I have found that there is so much disagreement among the top scholars and thinkers uh, in, in, in our tradition. And so back and forth and up and down, and is it, if it's this, then it's this, then it's this, then it's this. But if it's not this, then it goes here, then it goes here, then it goes here. And you have to make 100,000 uh, uh, conclusions, which, you know what? All I said to God, I said, God, as I go Sunday morning, I'm not going to have all the answers. All I can do is preach what I think I know is positively true in this passage. That's all I can do. That's my confession, folks, right then and there, okay? And I want to tell you, one of the first confession I make is that, you know what? Is it talking about husband and wife or is it talking about a generic man and a generic woman? I'm not 100% sure. I think it may be talking about a husband and a wife, as RSV and some other passages you know, uh, translated, but I'm not 100% sure. I do know that this word, a little bit about this word, head. Now, the word that Paul uses here is the, you know, it's the word that's referred to, at the, you know, that ha hairy, hard, circular object that rests on your shoulders, which houses your brain and your ears and your eyes and your nose and all that kind of things, and, and, and which your fingers take their cues from. In this passage, sometimes he's referring to just that. Your noggin. That's exactly what he's talking about. The thing that you put a hat on. But in here in verse 3, he's using it metaphorically, referring to someone who is in primary leadership. Now, there are a couple of uh, problems uh, here. The first problem comes in when people read this verse and they think in their mind, unequal. Head equals unequal, which which is very understandable, because a lot of times uh, when one is leading and the other is following, there's an unequalness in knowledge and experience and authority. But he says first, the head of every man is Christ. And we all get that. He's the leader of the race. This is the declaration of his right to lead the entire human race. In the mind uh, and thinking of God, and ultimately as Scripture points out again and again and again, there will come a day when all humanity, without exception, shall bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So whether men know it or not, and most men don't know it, whether they know it or not, Christ is their head, and they're responsible to following him. Now imagine, just imagine, if everybody did, if everybody, if everybody acknowledged Jesus Christ as their head. Could you think about this for a minute? Now, I'm not talking about, you know, your, our sin nature evaporates. I'm talking about people just as we are, as you are, as I am, who stumble in the right direction, but who stumble. Could you imagine the difference on this globe if people said, you know what? I recognize Jesus Christ. He's the head of every man. A lot of guys who are in law enforcement, I, I know we got some. A lot of you guys would be out of business, I gotta tell you right now. I'm sorry, you'd have to, I'm, you're gifted. I know you'd find something else to do for the most part. We wouldn't be talking about nuclear disarmament with North Korea. Could you imagine? Uh, so many things would change before our, instantaneously it would change. Imagine the whole human race willingly submitted to the claim of Christ on their lives. Imagine if the gospel of God's gracious act of sending his son, 
to bear the burden of people's sins were understood and embraced by the entire world. Marriages, neighborhoods, nations would be transformed. Imagine if all the people acknowledged and honored Christ as their head. It's coming one day. It's coming one day. It's called heaven. So it's coming one day. Paul said the head of every man is Christ. Now, I don't think many Christians, again, let me say it again. I don't think many Christians have a problem with that. They get it. We don't always act like it, but basically we do believe it. Got it. Christ is the head. He's the leader of the race. He's the determiner of every man's destiny, the one to follow. Check? Check. At the end, he says, and the head of Christ is God. Hmm. All right, wait a minute. Uh, the theologians among us, or those who are not playing games on their smartphones, usually when I'm preaching, may hesitate with this one. And they'll say, Pastor Tim, I've heard you say once, I've heard you say it twice, I've heard you say it a hundred times, that Jesus Christ was fully God. I've, I, I know I've heard that. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus, the Son of God, is equal to the Father in his deity. Yes, you're right. Nevertheless, when he assumed flesh, when he became one of us, the Bible says that he willingly submitted himself to the leadership of the Father. Jesus declares without a hint of contradiction that the Father in John 14 is greater than I. Never inferring inferiority or inequality because he says in another place, I and the Father are what? One. I do always those things which pleases my Father, he said. On another occasion, he said, my meat is to do my Father's will and to please him who sent me. Jesus was subject to God the Father, but he is not, nor has he ever been, nor will he ever be inferior to him. He seemed to be saying that in the example of Christ under the headship of the Father, that's possible to be in a relationship where you are subordinate, or even a better term, you defer to someone else while at the same time not being inferior in any important way. I think Paul is saying just that. Then he gets a bit more specific, right? It's the one you're waiting for, right? It's the one everybody's waiting for. It's the one in the middle. And the head of the woman is man, which really is the point of contention for many people and, 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 you know, that phrase alone has launched a thousand books and tens of thousands of articles. I got to tell you right now. Now, what is the point he is trying to make with these three examples? He's saying that one of the reasons that people are so confused specifically, even down to the, you know, the gender question, is that they refuse to follow the leadership of their God-ordained head generally, And listen, when we refuse to follow the leadership of our God-ordained head generally, it will always, always, always lead to confusion in more specific relationships in our lives. If I were to ask you why Satan fell, those of you who are Bible scholars, again, would probably turn to, you know, Isaiah chapter 14. You go right there, you know, Isaiah 14. And you'd say, well, it it, it was a single prideful, you know, Sinful act. But that sinful act was not the cause of Satan's fall. That sinful act really was only the product of something that was much, much more sinister. 
Because great, Satan's great sin was merely the product of a heart filled with rebellion. And a heart that is full of rebellion is a heart that is turned away from the authority of God in their lives. It was rebellion that God condemned. And it is that satanic principle of rebellion that has brought men and women to the state that we are in right now. We, talk, we like to talk often about people being blinded by the truth. I talked about it last week, if you were here, right? I mean, you know, I, I quoted some of those scriptures. I'm not going to go back to them right now. People are blinded to the truth. They certainly are. Unless God comes and removes the blinders, they will never understand the gospel. They will never be able to uh, participate in, in the church or in the Holy Spirit. Uh, we, we, we talk about people being deceived by the evil. They absolutely are deceived by the evil one. They absolutely are. But folks, listen, at the center of the heart of men and women is rebellion, which stems from a heart that, that does not know or acknowledge God's authority. You know what comes from, de uh, from being deceived? Sin comes from deception. Sin comes from deception. And when we believe lies, it leads to something else. It leads to rebellion. And rebellion sets our, uh, you know, a rebellious mind begins to become, and I have seen this, I have, I have in, some, in some instances in my own life experienced it, a, a, a deceived, rebellious mind begins to become twisted. And when your mind becomes twisted, you become confused, even to basic truths. Now listen, this happens, this is true in any avenue of life, any, any discipline. The only way to counteract the twisting of our minds you know what it is? It's a good dose of truth. A good dose of truth. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. Ready? With greater leadership comes greater responsibility. There's greater responsibility with the head than there is with the one who is following the head. Okay? When Paul in other places talks about the marriage union, for instance, of a, a husband's headship, he in no way is supporting an authoritarian, uh, authoritarian leadership style. In fact, He's advocating the extreme opposite. He heaps more responsibility on the husband to love his wife using Christ's love for humanity as his model, even as Christ, what? Loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He loved the church to death. That's really, you know what? That's one of the only persons who's ever walked on the earth that you can really say that about. He loved something so much that he loved them to death. His own death. There is extra responsibility heaped upon him. Why does God put structures in place? Why does God put structures in place? Because, folks, check it out yourself. You want to read the, West, the, 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 you know, uh, the history of Western civilization, Eastern civilization? You can read it all. You know, Durant, the Durants who wrote that, you know, those many tomes. Go ahead and read it. Why does God put structures in place? Here it is. And they were, not, they were not believers. Because there is no evidence that any human society, and I will add Christian community, has ever functioned successfully or near successfully without some recognized authorities to whom others willingly submit to. We all the time submit to others whom we consider ourselves to be equal to. I submit to an elder board at the Crossing Church the governing body of our church. Now, you know, a lot of them are, are a lot smarter than me, but I do not consider them, honestly, qualitatively better than me. I consider us pretty equal. 
When I was a painter, I submitted to a boss who I did not consider better than me. In fact, in some important distinctives, he was desperately lacking. Desperately lacking. God is and always has been. Listen. God is and always has been a God of order. In his mercy and his love, he has devised a way to make order out of what would surely be chaos by giving authority to some and asking others to willingly follow. When we don't do that, we don't follow the structures that he has set up. We dishonor one person above all others. You know who it is? It's him. We dishonor God. So when we dishonor his structures... We dishonor him, and when we dishonor him in the nation, in the church, in the family, confusion is the order of the day. It's very practical, folks. Folks, this is very practical stuff. Uh, you know, often we pray that God will help us to stop sinning. Do you ever pray, God, help me stop sinning? You know, I get, I'm pretty good here. You know, I, I see progress. You know, 2015, I'm writing this, and now, oh, gee, look at, man, look at me in 2018, you know. And, and you see progress. But there's something. It's just it's almost like a besetting sin. And, 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 and it comes back and it, and it controls. And it, like we talked about you know, last week, it becomes an idol in your life. Jesus gave a prayer, a model prayer, in, in Matthew, in the, gospel, in the, on the Sermon on the Mount. Nowhere in that model prayer does Jesus say, pray that our Heavenly Father will take away the strongholds of sin in your life. Nowhere. Had Robinson once said this. He said, the first step in spiritual growth is not to pray for inner feeling or inner change. Listen. But that God will indeed be God in your life. That's the prayer. The primary focus of our spiritual life should not be on inner change, but the focus of our spiritual life should be on honoring God by giving him complete authority in our lives. You will be holy. You will see sins begin to fall away. All practical stuff. You will begin to see the radical change. You will begin to live the life that you have long sought for. Not as you whine and complain about your deficiencies, but as you recognize God's authority in your personal life, in your business life, in your marriage, in all aspects of living. And by the way, that should dominate our prayers for others too. We should pray not so much that they would escape from sin, but that they would come to let God be God in their lives. Amen? Now, the easiest way to see that people have decided to go their own way, Paul tells us. The easiest way to see that they've gone their own way in the sand, eh, this authority stuff, I'm not too, I, you know, I'm not too sure. We'll consider it. We will consider it, you know, and I'll get back to you. I'll have my secretary call your secretary, and then we'll talk about it, and we'll figure this whole thing out. The easiest way to see that people have decided to go their own way is when they dishonor him and dishonor those whom he has put in leadership. Often the confusion and disruption in our lives can be easily traced to a heart of rebellion that will not follow the leadership of those whom God has put before us. But when we honor our head... We honor God. And you know what begins to happen? Confusion begins to fade. When we live in the structures that God has put in place, our mind begins to clear. 
the twistedness begins to straighten out. Now, two things are very important to notice in that paragraph. One, the center of Paul's concern is the public ministry of the Word of God. He's talking here about Christians. He's talking about church. He's talking about the gathering of believers together in a public assembly. In order to properly function in that capacity, he's saying a woman should have something, a covering, and, and that the man should not. Very, very important. Now, the second thing to note, we're going to get back to it, is that the covering is kind of a symbol of the acceptance and the understanding of the principle of headship, which he has just declared. Where, you know, where public ministry is involved, it is just as important that a man should not be covered as that that a woman should. That was the application of headship in that culture, and that was the custom in that day and that time. Remember what we said, the Bible was not written to us, it was written for us. There are principles that we could take out of this, but it was written to a different time, a different place, different people. Look what he says in verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. Now let me say this. It has proven to be a Herculean task in this instance to determine definitively why Paul saw as an outward sign of an inward determination to follow God's design the fact that men should not cover their heads. And, and you know, how would his head, who's his head? Christ. How would Christ be dishonored by him if he showed up, you know, in church wearing a hat? I don't know. I, I, this is one of those, I made my confession before. I'm not really sure about this one. I tried. I really tried hard. I got to, I really did. God knows I tried hard. But I don't, I came out and I said, I'm not really sure about this one. I just, this is what I, I am sure about, though. I'm pretty sure that when he was writing, when Paul was writing this whole section, I don't think they were all sitting there in that culture in that time going, I don't know what this guy's talking about. I think they did understand a lot of what he was talking about. I just don't think that we have enough. We, we, we do a really good job. We've had scholars through centuries who have gotten back to the first century. They looked at the customs, archaeology. They bring it all together, all the sciences, and they come up as to what's going on. We don't got enough on this one, as far as I can tell. We just don't got enough. I'm simply not sure. You know, now the same thing is not necessarily true when speaking of a woman showing up in church without her head covered. We know a little bit more about that. If she, uh, look, if she did, she was literally dishonoring her husband. Why? Because in the first century, the only women who did not wear a covering or have a covering were either temple prostitutes, women who were looking for a good time, or who were publicly, publicly showing disdain for the man that she was married to. We do know that. It was indeed disgraceful, shameful for a woman to appear in public, and especially to minister the word, which, by the way, they were ministering, ministering the word in the context of the local church in verse 5. Okay, It was very difficult to minister the word in a Christian assembly without that sign of acknowledgement of the principle of headship in her life. But remember... As we looked at last week, one of the things that in this case, the woman who had been saved, 
these women had been saved, were now in the church, idolized. What was the thing that they were idolizing? Freedom. Their newfound freedom. Yeah, the prostitutes don't bother with head coverings, and I used to be constrained by those rules too. But you know what? Now I'm free. I can do what I want. I don't want to do my hair in the morning and cover it up. I want everyone to see it. I just use this new shampoo with, with the conditioner, and it looks beautiful. It's all shiny this morning. I want everyone to see it. I don't want to cover it up. Now, we don't have to worry about that kind of thing in 2018. We really don't. There is no shame in not wearing something on your head in public or in the church. A woman's moral character is no longer open for suspicion if she doesn't. But folks, i got to tell you, there are other ways. Let me take a drink. There are other ways that women sometimes show rebellion against God's authority in their lives and shame their husbands or their fathers if they're unmarried, whose scripture says is dad's responsibility, his daughters. Sometimes they do it by wearing clothes that seem to be saying that they are available even though they're not. It's only the most naive and rarest of women after a certain age that do not understand the reactions they may elicit from men by wearing certain clothes. Sorry, okay? I, this is just my, my observation. Now, I may be, look, another confession. I may be desperately misinformed, or I may, at this moment, be making a sinful judgment. But it seems to me that a woman understands exactly what she wears and why she wears it. God knows if she does it to elicit a response from those who should, she should not be trying to elicit and arouse a response from. And folks, i got to tell you this. Here's, here's, this, is, this is how you know, we talk about twisted mind, confused. The truly sad thing is that sometimes husbands like it when they see other men looking at their wives with lustful leers, because far from eliciting a natural sense of horror and godly jealousy, remember we talked about that? They, they, they you know, it's, 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 you know, instead of, you know, having this, this, this pledged exclusivity to each other, somehow he likes it when other men look at her because it makes him feel superior to them in some sort of way. Is it any wonder that men and women have so much brokenness between them? We are going to address that more next week. Let me say this. When we honor our head, we honor God, and you know what begins to fade? Confusion. It begins to fade. Paul said this. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if, she, uh, but if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off of her head or her head shaven, then she should cover her head. Do you know what they used to do uh, if, if, uh, in, in World War II? Uh, when, when the Germans came in, you know, they ran around the Maggio line, dumbest thing in defensive history and military history. They went around the Maggio line. They took over France in just a few weeks. They took over Paris. Uh, but then, near the end of the war, after D-Day, German forces started pulling back. The women in Paris who gave themselves to the German officers, they brought them into the center square of town. I've, I've seen videos of this, movies of this. And you know what they did? They didn't beat them. They didn't lecture them. They didn't shoot them. You know what they did? They shaved their heads. 
They shaved the women's heads. And the women, I remember, I think for some of them it would have been better if they were shot. They were sitting there in horror because the shaving of the head, of their head, was an ultimate shaming. And they knew, see, they knew that. It was an ultimate shaming. And Paul is saying, if she doesn't want to wear the sign of a relationship under headship, then you know what? She ought to go the whole way and just shave her head like a prostitute, you know, and proclaim herself, you know, open for business because she refuses to wear the covering and submit to the clearly established customs of a day. If you don't want to acknowledge it onto your head and God, then why don't you just go all the way and walk around naked? Why don't you just go all the way? That's what Paul's saying. Paul's kind of riled up here. Do you get, you get the feeling that he's kind of riled up at this point? Now, immediately, the apostle follows with an explanation. Uh, he, he, you know, we, we come to a major part of, of the message, I think, in verse 7. Verse 7, he tells us why this is all true. Look what he says. He says, a man ought to not cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the, but woman is the glory of man. And then look at his explanation. It wasn't cultural, was it? What was it? creation. He says, for the man did not come from women, woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Now, image is the full manifestation. The image of something is the full manifestation of something. In this case, it's God himself. Man was made in God's image in order that any creature looking at man would see a likeness. We don't God doesn't have a nose, a little tiny nose like mine, you know, or big ears or stuff like that. God is spirit. But in the most important aspects of what makes us like him, in our self-consciousness, and the fact that we, can, we, we record history, the fact that we learn. There are no dogs, as far as I know, who got off the ark and said to the other dogs, you know what, now let me tell you what we've learned all along the way now, and we're going to start all over again, and we're going to... That, not, that doesn't happen with animals. We are qualitatively different than animals. Now, uh, what Paul, you know, Paul is saying that, you know why, he goes all the way back to creation, and he says man was made in the very image of God. Talking about, again, full manifestation. The man in Genesis 127, it says, was made in the image of God, and yet, isn't it interesting, just a few chapters later, in Genesis chapter 5, listen, in Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says this, when God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And he named them, this is NIV, mankind when they were created. Do you know what the word for mankind is? Adam. The word for mankind is Adam. The man and the woman were Adam. They were the Adams family. They really were. Adam Adams and Eve Adams. You know, I don't know why the same name twice. You know, it's kind of weird. William Williams. Sorry if you're, if you're here or anything like that. So, you know, this verse is telling us when man was created, he was made to reflect the nature of God. And in that, God took great delight and so was the woman. He delights in mankind. In addition, Paul says the man takes delight and he glories in the woman. Now, verse 7 says that the woman is the glory of man. We talked a little bit about glory last week. Glory denotes magnificence, splendor, beauty, wonder. Glory also brings about, always brings about a feeling 
of wonder, a feeling of joy, a feeling that you are beholding something that is truly beautiful. Adam, I think, was awestruck by Eve. You know, it, 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 he was someone like, like him, but very different than him also. A perfect fit, a perfect compliment for him, unlike anything he had seen in all of God's previous creations. But you know what? Far from being the ultimate compliment, many women read this verse, I know, they feel belittled and diminished, thinking that Paul is teaching that women must find their value, their purpose, their identity in a man. You know what Satan's plan is? Real easy. Real easy blueprints. I'm going to give it to you now. Satan's plan is to divide, conquer, and destroy as men and women compete and wrestle for power and position over each other, and it, and it, it mars God's creation. They were meant to complement each other. And yet, and yet, can we not see that the covering she wore, and this is something else, folks, the covering she wore was, was more, it was more than just kind of a, a, a symbol of headship. It was a symbol of intimacy. See, it, it was a sign that is voluntarily assumed by the woman. She was not forced to do so, but she chose to do it, so she marked herself as belonging to this man. A covered woman walks down a street of some cities, even today, and you know what she's telling the whole world? I am not for sale. I don't belong to anyone but my husband. I am his. And you know what he does in turn, according to scripture, you know what he does? He in turn cherishes and never, ever, ever abuses. We're going to talk about it next week. Okay? Okay. I'm just doing commercials, right? Oh, two weeks. I'm sorry. We're going to talk about it. It's commercials. In wearing a covering, a woman gives a testimony to the existence of a whole other aspect of the glory of God. The intimacy of delight that is achieved only through redemption. See, when we enter by faith in Jesus Christ into the new birth, we discover a glory of God beyond the creation. It's a it is a redemptive glory. We, we sang a couple of the songs. I didn't realize that word kept popping up. Glory this morning. Glory. We all have if you are a Christian, you have experienced this in some degree. We know the ecstasy of fellowship with God, of worshiping privately and with the children of God, with the church as a whole. We have experienced that. We experience the beautifulness, the intimate love relationship between a bride and her bridegroom, you know, described in that marvelous fifth chapter of the Gospel of Ephesians. She is symbolizing that intimate delight which God has in a redeemed mankind now listen people take notice take notice it is not only others in worship who take notice but all of heaven does including the ministering spirits you know that part about uh, for the sake of the angels i figured i figured that was self-explanatory i might just skip that but you know uh that's that's a joke that's a joke. You could, you know, yeah, that was a joke. I, I, obviously, it's not. In fact, somebody in the back said to me before, what is that about when they saw the scripture reading uh, you know, this morning? The ministering spirits of God, they, they look at what's happening here today. Do you believe that there is a dimension that our physical eyes cannot see? I do. I think the Bible teaches that. 
I honestly believe the Bible. I think there's stuff going on right now which would freak us out, number one, uh, if, if our eyes were, were, were totally opened. You know what the Bible seems to indicate, even in Hebrews, even, even here? It seems to indicate that ministering angels who are ministering spirits, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're here, man. They, I, I wonder if one just fist pumped me. I wonder, you know. Uh, I'll, one day I'll find out, you know. They take notice in, in a culture where uncovered women were regarded as idolaters and prostitutes or protesting against their marriage, it would be an offense to the angels present in a Christian service for a woman to openly flaunt custom and deny the principle of headship. They would be aghast. Angels, we are told, are ministering spirits, Hebrews 1, sent forth to minister to those who are heirs of salvation. You know who that is? They were present at creation. So they understood the principle of coverings. And they know that when men and women wander outside of God's prescribed structures and protection, bad things happen. Confusion reigns. And I think sometimes when there is a flaunting of headships, I think the angels, as they look at that, they, I think they cover their eyes with their wings. You know, I think they just absolutely cover their eyes when they see what's about to happen. These creatures who ministered not only here, but on earth, here on earth, but in the, they ministered to the very throne of God. Scripture tells us in Isaiah chapter 6, they know what true, they know what real worship of God is all about. Don't make them cover their eyes by dishonoring God and bringing on confusion and brokenness that marks this earth that God sent his son to redeem. When we honor our head, we honor God. And you know what begins to fade? The confusion that racks our culture. And that is beginning to seep into the church.